Hi there. I hope you find great value in the episode that I'm about to share with you. Before we start, I want to thank you for your precious attention and take this opportunity to invite you to consider joining my next Entrepreneur's Awakening Mastermind program. I'm only accepting eight business leaders and it's filling up fast. If you're curious, visit awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, on with the episode. Hello, dear listener. This episode of the Awake Forward podcast is unique. Inspired by the Ayahuasca Mastermind program that I'm currently leading, I want to share with you my favorite episode from my other podcast called The Entrepreneur's Awakening Podcast. Here's why. Over the years, I've found that most of the entrepreneurs that have gone through my Ayahuasca Mastermind program, regardless of what they ask Ayahuasca to help them with, end up receiving healing related to their relationship with their father. Why does ayahuasca do that? Well, I've come to think that it has something to do with the similarities between the father's role and a startup CEO's role. I also think that ayahuasca may be providing the psychological change that used to happen back in tribal days when boys went through a life-threatening rite of passage that graduated them from boys to men. Today, without formal rites of passage, I think that, at least on some level, our psychological dependency on our parents can linger for decades. In this episode, you'll learn how Ayahuasca took founder Jesse Krieger through a rite of passage that transformed his relationship with his father, liberating him in profound ways that he didn't expect. Jesse's is such a rich and layered story. I even went as far as interviewing his father to ask him about the impact it had on their relationship. I also interviewed our ayahuasca shaman to get his perspective on what actually happened to Jesse. I'm confident that you'll find this episode fascinating and that you will gain insights you can apply to your life right away. So without further ado, I'm very proud to present episode six of the Entrepreneur's Awakening podcast. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Awakening Podcast, where you'll hear business leaders share life-changing insights triggered by profound awakening experiences. I'm Michael Kosturos, a former tech startup founder myself, now an executive awakening coach to some of Silicon Valley's most talented startup leaders. In 2008, while leading my own startup, I had a profound awakening experience that changed everything in my life for the better. Since then, I've been fascinated by the phenomenon of awakenings, how to reliably trigger them, and the changes they cause in business leaders. In this first season, my guests share the leadership and life lessons obtained from working with Ayahuasca during a mastermind program I have led since 2012. Ayahuasca is an ancient Amazonian tribal medicine with psychedelic properties that reliably trigger awakenings, which leave the initiate profoundly transformed. Together, we'll be discovering what impact Ayahuasca has had on the businesses and personal lives of these entrepreneurs. You will hear mind-blowing stories and actionable insights that you yourself can apply to your life and business right away. So let's dive in. Hello. 
For more than 100 million years, all of humanity lived in tribal cultures. Hold on. Think about that for a moment. 100 million years. That's a really long time. So during those formative years, our ancestors had plenty of time to figure out what worked to maintain healthy individuals, families, and tribal communities. One aspect of tribal culture that seems to have been adopted by every known tribe were sacred rituals designed to facilitate change change in an individual, change in a family, or the whole tribe. While modern culture has maintained some of these rituals, for example, birthdays, bat mitzvahs, weddings, and funerals, a very critical one is missing, the rite of passage. While a rite of passage can take on countless forms to have the intended effect of changing the core identity of the participant and the way the family and tribe relate to that individual, the participant must face and overcome extreme physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual challenges. In essence, they must face their fears, break through the limitations of their previous identity, and claim the new identity that is born out of the process. Traditionally, the tribe welcomed the initiate's new identity, supporting them to integrate it by relating to them in a new way. An extraordinary quality of ayahuasca, if you approach it with this intention, is that it can take the participant through the key inner transformations associated with a rite of passage. They die to their outdated self, like a snake shedding its skin, and are reborn into a new way of experiencing their inner self and the outer world. This is why it's so common for people to say that ayahuasca changed their life. It didn't actually change their life, but in my opinion, it cleared out the outdated aspects of their self-identity and made room for the person they actually are to emerge. Perhaps this explains why ayahuasca has become so popular in Western culture, despite the fact that it's so damn unpleasant. I mean, what's up with that? It's not like Americans to voluntarily pay hundreds of dollars to sit in the dark, face their demons, and vomit all night. I think it's because ayahuasca provides the experience and the results of one of the most important rituals that Western culture has lost. My guest this episode is Jesse Krieger. Jesse is a serial lifestyle entrepreneur, public speaker, and international best-selling author who has traveled the globe. Like many of us, by his mid-30s, he realized that the maturation of certain areas of his life had stagnated despite his best efforts. In short, he felt stuck. The four primary issues that were holding Jesse back are the kind that we all must face and transcend at some point to advance in our lives. One of the issues that Jesse met and overcame was a long-time codependent dynamic with his father. In fact, after hearing what Jesse did when he got home, I was so intrigued that I called up Jesse's father to get his perspective and include it in this episode. After doing that, it was clear to me that I wanted to hear the opinions of our ayahuasca shaman, properly referred to as an ayahuasquero, Javier Riguero. Javier agreed to listen to the episode and share his perspective with us. I'm inspired to share this story with you, Jesse's story is such a great example of what ayahuasca, if approached as a rite of passage, can do for you. As you listen, ask yourself if you have already passed through the four initiations that Jesse experiences. Okay, enough talk. Here's my interview with Jesse Krieger, recorded during the time of COVID, the summer of 2020, four years after Jesse's life-changing experience in Peru. Let's dive in. So, Jesse, there you are. You've just traveled halfway across the world to a foreign land. The sun has just set, and you're sitting inside of a temple. 
The ayahuasquero has called you to the altar. Right in front of you, he reverently pours a thick, dark liquid into a small gourd and hands it to you. You're holding your first cup of ayahuasca and you have to make your final decision. Do you drink it? What was that moment like for you? Well, that is a moment I will not forget. So there we are in Peru, in the Andes, in this beautiful ayahuasca temple with a glass ceiling and the stars are above. And there's this man, Javier, that you brought us to see, Michael, who's just the epitome of embodied spirituality and grounded centeredness and calmness, pouring this thing into a cup that part of me is absolutely terrified to drink. <laughs> yeah. And so I kneel down, hero's pose, set my intention, surrender to the moment and drink it down. And I remember right after that, right after I swallowed, I was just like, it's inside of me. And I was like, oh my gosh. And because there's so much buildup, you know, there was a diet, there was unhooking myself from media and other stimulation and sexual activity and certain foods. And all of this leads up to this moment where goes down yep. the chute. Yeah, that's part of what makes ayahuasca so different than many other things one could do is that, especially in our program, you work up to it for a month and you're extracting yourself from your habits and your life. And then you put you on a plane and fly you to South America to a place you've never been. And you're in this foreign country, with this foreign thing that's illegal in our country. Mm. And this all I find has really adds up to magnify the impact of your choice and your willingness to deeply surrender to the medicine that ayahuasca has to offer. And so just hearing your description, I'm like, yes, it worked. <laughs> the choreography that led to that moment is what I'm very proud of. Honestly, an integral part of the overall experience and something I now feel passionately about in terms of the responsible and the contextual use of plant medicine generally, but ayahuasca in particular. So a great credit to you for having the foresight to create that container for us and the other participants to have that much more of a profound experience. If I'm remembering correctly, we met in 2013, is that right? Yes. I still remember it now. The same smile, the curly hair, the glasses, the just warm energy. Oh, I'm blushing. Thank you. That's sweet to hear. Yeah. So what were you struggling with back then? Well, yeah. 2013, so such an auspicious time. So I capstoned off my 20s where I co-founded four businesses, was in a rock band, toured the country, became an investment banker, and had a green energy renewable credits business. And there's not too much more that needs to be said about that other than I've got the entrepreneur bug hard and deep yeah. and managed to travel the world a lot in the process of doing these different businesses. And so I wrote a book called Lifestyle Entrepreneur that was published in 2012 in Southeast Asia. A quick question about that. There was a transition. You were a non-lifestyle entrepreneur, and then you transitioned to being a digital nomad, essentially like kind of a pioneering digital nomad lifestyle entrepreneurs. Do I have that right? I guess. The truth is like, I've never actually had a normal job. Out of high school, I went to music school, then lived in Europe and played music in bars and clubs, and then Nashville and had a rock band and my first business was a record label. And then that whole experience spiraled into consulting and then finance and other things. So I've always in 
one way, shape, or form, just followed the things I become interested in and found a business model that allowed me to really learn and experience different aspects of business and in turn life. And so that's how I thought of what it is to be a lifestyle entrepreneur, to combine the things you're interested in and passionate about with turning them into products and services in a way that you can run a business from anywhere in the world. And that was a more novel concept in 2009, 10, 11, as I was writing the book. So just by virtue of truly feeling like that's the, the description of my approach to entrepreneurship is now the basis for the publishing company, Lifestyle Entrepreneurs Press, of course. All right. So you had this literal lifestyle entrepreneur experience from the point you got out of high school. And eventually you wrote the book. It was published in Southeast Asia. Exactly. When the book came out in Southeast Asia, I went on toured Malaysia, Singapore, and it became a best-selling book. And that was a cool experience. Not that it made me a ton of money, but it definitely opened my eyes to the possibility of being like somebody who's an author and who's a speaker and who shares like a message with the world instead of being a behind the scenes operator. And I really had no idea how to build a business around that. So joining the mastermind where we met, I was so inspired by people like Dane Maxwell and when they were running the foundation and all these other things that people were doing. And I was, you know, I had like 700 people on an email list and 5,000 Malaysian fans on a Facebook page, but that that wasn't a business. So I was like, how do I actually build this? And so that was where I was approaching it. Very green in 2013. And what was hardest for you about that? There was a real transition that I wanted to make from like, not just being a personality or like an influencer, quote unquote, or whatever, but to actually build a business that is of tangible value and service to others over the long term. But there's one more piece that we haven't talked about yet, Michael, (laughs) which really is important and plays into ultimately where we're going with this discussion. From maybe age 13, 14, so shortly after divorce, my dad has begun his own spiritual awakening and soon falls in love with a psychic who at that time was like the psychic to the stars, worked with people from The Sopranos and others in Hollywood. And so now here's my dad liberated with a business, with kids that are not in diapers any longer. And he just starts dating and exploring and finds this turns out to be a very wonderful woman. But I had conflict with her for a number of reasons (laughs) growing up, but she helped open him up spiritually. And so he starts writing. And from as far back as I can remember, 13, 14, he's been working on a book that's going to change the world. And it's almost done. Two, three Three weeks weeks away, away. and it's done. And that plays directly into why I ultimately wrote a book and then started publishing and then built a publishing company that would be able to give his book the platform it deserves. And there was such a expectation, energetic connection around this book and this whole dynamic throughout my childhood into my adulthood that is pretty profound. So when you were mid-teens, your dad starts talking about this spiritual book that's going to change humanity. And I'm going to be the one to bring it out. And I'm going to be like the next coming or whatever. No pressure. Oh, yeah, none at all. Wow. I didn't realize that he somewhat saddled you with the responsibility of getting his life's work out to the world. This is like 15 years before you started a publishing company or something? Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think you were just going to go into publishing straight out of high school? I mean, what was his plan? Well, for that 10 or 15 years, that 
I was definitely not in publishing. I you know, was in a rock yeah. band and I did a number of other things, but was always following along on the storyline. The book's almost done and this and that. And to his credit, he's written a voluminous amount and much of it is truly profound and amazing. So there's this storyline of like, where do we draw the line and say, okay, I'm ready to actually share this. I'm ready to actually say this is done. And now it turns into a book. And now the focus is on getting it into people's hands. That's at the heart of the publishing work that I do with so many authors now. So the way that I do think of it is having sort of the ultimate nut to crack or the toughest possible case. Um, wrestling with my dad through all of this for his book has equipped me to really be able to support other authors in pretty deep and meaningful ways, at least according to what they've shared about their experience. That's really great that you've been able to focus on all the positive aspects that came with the struggle of helping your dad finish his book. And I'm imagining throughout the years, it's been difficult to balance the two relationships, a father-son relationship and author-publisher relationship. But first, where did you first hear about ayahuasca? Hi there. Please excuse this interruption, but I want to take this opportunity to invite you to join the next Entrepreneur's Awakening Mastermind program. As I said before, I'm only accepting eight business leaders and it's filling up fast. So if you're curious, visit awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, back to the episode. Well, Michael, that would be from you. But practically speaking, if I had heard any passing reference prior, it wasn't until meeting you and at that time in 2013, you were yourself sort of at the beginning of really doing these retreats and the deep work you've done through Entrepreneur's Awakening and all of your work with plant medicine. And I was definitely observant and it seemed like something so exotic and just you go where at the Amazon and you drink some concoction from like plants <laughs> and it does what? <laughs> so there was that, but at the same time, I've been familiar with psychedelics and mind-altered states of consciousness through from my mid-teens on. So there was also this allure of like, as it sort of appeared, the kind of ultimate experience of self-realization and awakening. So there's like this draw, and maybe you yourself felt it yeah. back then. I remember you were much more hesitant to be public about your work with ayahuasca. Yeah. But I followed that for sure and watched as you brought people down to Peru the first and second time. And, you know, if you want to get into that part, like I know you invited was, me and I was just a no. <laughs> you were intrigued, but you were a clear no. That was a very, very interesting time for me. because basically I was an executive coach about a year and a half into that after leaving my own startup and was very concerned about being known as the executive coach that uses psychedelics with their clients. Because in 2013, it was just not an acceptable approach to professional development, shall we say. Man, that brings me back. You know, there was something there that piqued my attention of like, this isn't just business as usual. This isn't transactional business. This is like transformational relationship business. It was a different game. Yeah. I've always been interested in the deepest forms of relating with other human beings that everything else just seems too trivial to bother with. And, you know, there are a few things that are more intimate than sharing an ayahuasca retreat 
That's so true. So 2013, you politely declined. 2014, I invited you again. You said no. 2015, I'm like, come on, it's popular (laughs) now. Look, there's all these magazine articles. Yes. What are you waiting for? And you're like, I'm not quite there yet. And I'm like, this guy's (laughs) never going to come. So yeah, I mean, the previous two years you had invited me and I watched with curiosity from a distance, especially afterwards and just hearing some of the stories and partially just being like, wow, is this really happening? What these people are describing, is this really their experience? And also I attributed you becoming more comfortable with sharing this publicly. You got a feature in Rolling Stone. There was talk of Fast Company sending a video crew down in the 2016 to video document the whole program. And now here I am running a publishing company, actually publishing and getting people's books out. And we're going through the motions with my father's book. And I remember, you know, he had asked me to personally edit it, like as opposed to bringing in someone on our team or something else. Wasn't it like 10,000 pages or something? It was like 200 pages, but it was substantial and some of it fairly dense material too. So there I am like combing through line by line, my father's life's work and his epitome of his dreams and, and what he's been working on for so long. And I felt this as both like an expectation, just as if from his view, this is how it was always meant to be. And from right. mine, like, wow, this is really both uncomfortable, but exciting and always feeling well, conflicted about what's my real role in this. And am I to take on his message in some shape or form? And that's a conflicted headspace to be in. All right. So what were the primary intentions you had going into the ayahuasca ceremonies? One of the primary ones was to just find a resolution or some clarity with this dynamic with my father. Fast forwarding to right before the first night of ceremony, I literally finished editing the the final page of his book and sent it off and then closed my computer. And I was like, thank goodness I'm done with that. Now I finally feel like I can enter into this experience without that hanging over me, so to speak. So you're working on it on the plane down and just kind of cramming to get the editing done? I can see it right now in my mind's eye, sitting in posi loose, looking at the the window mm-hmm. thinking what in the world's about to happen and like shipping it off back to my dad and closing it and I don't think I turned my computer on since then. So going offline, going down the rabbit hole, I empowered my team for the first time to actually make decisions and run the company in my absence and it just felt like here we are. We're jumping down the rabbit hole. <laughs> That's what it felt like. I didn't know yeah, where it was going to lead. It's the ultimate hero's journey leap of faith. So I want to hear about any experience you had while on our retreat in Peru that you feel has impacted your life so much that you wouldn't be the man you are today if it hadn't happened. And I'm really curious to learn how your experience with ayahuasca impacted your personal relationship with your dad. Yeah, there's a few just beautiful experiences and takeaways. One being, you know, in that first ceremony where we did the San Pedro, just laying on my back with my eyes closed and I literally heard the words, I love you. And then I was like, where did that come from? And then I realized it was me. And I had this profound experience of self-love that sort of collapsed this whole identity I had of traveling the world and going to far-flung destinations and looking for adventure and validation from external sources, just all collapsed into, it's been inside of me all along. Mm. The exact thing I've been looking for far and wide, high and low has been right here. You know, that's a common wisdom teaching, but you can't get that conceptually. You need to have this profound awakening experience 
for that to really become a fundamental aspect of your character. And I have to say at least dozens of people that I know personally have had that experience with ayahuasca or San Pedro. San Pedro, by the way, is a cactus native to Peru that contains mescaline. And it's very profound and much gentler than ayahuasca. Javier had found that it was the right on-ramp to ayahuasca. So we'd always start with outdoor all day long San Pedro ceremony under these beautiful mountains in the Andes. And then that would roll into ayahuasca in the subsequent days. Yes. I mean, part of it is the San Pedro itself. Part of it is the realization of self-love. Part of it is the rituals of taking the tobacco and leaving an old relationship in, in the garden or the material acts of release and surrender and letting go and of purging. Mm -hmm. And it cleans out the vessel. You know, that was a time I felt so pure in a sense, so clean inside and out. That's a great way to describe what I believe that plant medicines in, in powerful ceremonial context do. They don't add anything. They just remove the shit that's built up over a lifetime that's causing all kinds of distortions and deletions and kinks in your ability to experience you. Yes, that. there's a very physical release as well as the emotional release and the spiritual release. I remember at one point just sitting there after God knows how many times of going to the bathroom and being like, I'm empty, you know, I'm hollowed out. <laughs> There's nothing else to let go of. So fill me up with the good stuff universe. <laughs> yeah, it's a special quality of emptiness. And that was purge. so good. Oh, I tell you, Michael, just that feeling of like, you know, I'd always held all the responsibility of every aspect of the business and every author's expectation and my father's expectation and just to release and then purge and feel free of that. That's the feeling of lightness is actually letting go of all the baggage. And the baggage you don't even know you're carrying. Yes. <laughs> Do I remember something about you riding on a crystal dragon? Well, this is the thing, Mike. I've always loved reptiles. My pets growing up were iguanas, turtle, snake, fish, no furry puppies, no kitties. And so uh -huh. I've always self-identified as being a dragon, let's say, <laughs> or a lizard uh -huh. of some kind. So I'm out here in Vegas just soaking up the sun. But all joking aside, I had a profound experience. I think I connected with what I interpreted as my spirit animal or protector. And it was this just badass dragon that tried to annihilate me with fire. And at some point, there was just this experience of opposing a dragon that was breathing fire. And there was a protective shield of sorts around me. And when it didn't incinerate me after trying its best, then it sort of lowered its neck a little bit and beckoned. And then I hopped on and went flying through different units universe, different dimensions. It was outside of time and space and it was so incredible. And Is anything revealed on that journey beyond the novelty of taken through multiple dimensions and universes? Well, yeah. And so at one point it just ate me. So it swallowed me. And then there was something revealing in terms of like, oh, I'm pretty safe if I'm like inside of this crystal dragon that can incinerate anything with the fires of Mordor. So it was this feeling of first opposition that melted into, no, you're protected and you're safe. And we'll fight for you or uh -huh. we're here to protect you. That's how I recall it now. Amazing. I remember you were amused by that. <laughs> Other people's uh, animals were more mundane, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty fantastic. But from a shamanic apprenticeship perspective, that was an initiation basically to your spirit protector. And it demonstrated to you the powers that it had that were available to you through collaboration with that spirit. And then constantly 
decimated the relationship by eating you. Yes. You know, they're really just a creature beyond time and space. And that was the experience that it had was just a moment out of time, a moment that was separate from how I would experience reality day to day, you know, mm -hmm. and that in turn provided perspective of, oh, well, is the reality I experience day to day just one filter through which the experience of life can be had? And it's one thing to have that as conceptual. It's a whole other thing to actually experience it in a context that feels as real or even more real than everyday life, which is what ayahuasca provides. It's absent any constraint of a body and the physical limitations of earthbound life, that was the experience that became available on a spiritual or at least non-physical plane. So at this point in my conversation with Jesse, I found myself wondering, how would our ayahuasquero, Javier Riguero, interpret Jesse's experience? I mean, He's the expert, having led probably a thousand people through their first ayahuasca experiences. So I reached out to Javier. I asked him to listen to Jesse's entire interview and share his perspectives with me. He graciously agreed. And so with no further ado, here's Javier Riguero speaking from PISAC, Peru. Thank you for having me. Michael. I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on Jesse's story. But first, I wanted to ask you, will you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Well, I'm a Spanish national who has been living in Peru for the last 15 years in the Cusco region. That's where you first met me. I moved here in order to do my work with plant medicines. So I lead retreats, healing retreats, and I've also written a trilogy of books on sacred Peruvian plant medicines, Ayahuasca, San Pedro, and most recently, the Toe Datura plant. Wonderful. So how long have you been leading ayahuasca ceremonies? I've been leading ceremonies and healing retreats for the last 15 years. So as I was working on the final edits of Jesse's story, it became clear to me that I wanted to get your perspective on the experiences he went through. He shares a story about confronting a crystal dragon that is so fierce and breathing fire on him until the point where it ultimately submits and then he is eaten by the dragon and becomes the dragon and then the dragon takes him on this extraordinary flight through the cosmos. And I'm wondering what you have to share about that archetypal story. You know, it's pretty self-explanatory as far as I'm concerned. What is important in this experience is that he was able to connect once he let go of the psychological stories that he used to tell himself that he was able to access a deeper reality an archetypal reality and embrace that archetypal energy as part of himself. So it's like reuniting with that form of energy that was already and always living in himself, but he had somehow separated from? And not separated from the stories, the level of consciousness that we spend most of our time keep us busy, keep us identified 
identified with those stories. And once we let go of those stories, then we are accessing levels of our beings that are much deeper and often we are not even aware of. The same has happened to me in the last few years where through my own healing process and through exploring and integrating resistances and fears, I was better able to step onto a place as a teacher, as a writer. And from that, my mm -hmm. level of creativity has just blossomed beyond any personal idea of what I would do or what was possible. Now, that was quite an interesting perspective. Through the process of working with ayahuasca, Jesse was shedding these stories and in so doing essentially reunited him with these archetypical energies let's hear what jesse has to say next so jesse i'm curious to learn how these metaphysical experiences while under the influence of ayahuasca actually changed your real world experience tell us what happened during the retreat that ended up impacting your relationship with your father when you got home. Yeah. So working on my father's book and sending off the final edits the same day that we went into ceremony for the first time. And so in the ceremony itself, I had a pretty profound experience of kneeling at my father's deathbed and witnessing him having passed and then looking up to the sky and raising my arms and then myself, like my life energy just shooting out of my mouth into the sky. And then I had this realization, well, if he's passed away and I'm passed away, then doesn't that dissolve and resolve whatever aspects of our relationship were uncomfortable? And it sort of unwound a lot of the emotion and so forth that had built up around that. Wow, that's profound. You never shared that with me before. Oh, wow. It's a big deal. Yeah. You know, going into the ceremony, when we wrote down our intentions, my two intentions were to experience something around profound love and, and intimacy. And then also was to release a sense of expectation I have to my father and a sense of obligation that I feel towards him. Mm -hmm. And this sort of two-way energetic dynamic of us always egging each other on and all the things that we've talked about with him writing his book and and it's two weeks away from being done for 15 years. Wow. What you just described is a critical psycho-emotional, even spiritual initiation. And every tribe today that's still culturally intact maintains this ceremonial initiation from boyhood into manhood. And I have to believe that it is critical to our development as individual humans to go through this initiation. And in the West, we've lost it. And and as a result, we have so many adult men well into their 30s, 40s, who still have this awkward codependent relationship with their father or parents because it was never properly terminated in a healthy way through this initiatory process. So when I hear what you just described going through, I feel so excited for you. No, that's interesting. You know, I didn't have that awareness going into it and it just impressed upon me as such a deeply personal experience. And yet it's also part of humanity, right? It's part of all men's experience in many ways. On the other side, if we fast forward for a 
moment. Like I remember being back in Las Vegas afterwards. And I think the first conversation I had with my dad, I felt like I was talking to a different person. But really, it was a result, I think, of the changes that had started to unpack within me. But I just saw so clearly the dynamic that I was such an active participant in. It was just such an eye-opening experience to be like, wow, sure, he's interacting the same with me as we probably always have. But now I see it in a different way and I own my part in any complication or perpetuation of the relationship that didn't need to be there. As I shared with Jesse, this, from my view, is such a pivotal awakening, a pivotal rite of passage, one that was likely at the core of every initiation. But that's just my perspective. Let's hear what Javier has to say about this. You know, Javier, when I heard him share about the experience of sitting at his father's deathbed, I was moved as that's such an archetypical process for liberating yourself as the child of your father and initiating yourself into a different relationship with your father. And then on top of that, for him to die as well, and both spirits leave their bodies. I thought that was really profound. And I'm wondering what you have to say about that. Well, ayahuasca does translate as the vine of the ancestors, as well as the vine of death. It is a medicine that invites us to change and to let go of what no longer serves us. So his experience is not at all uncommon, meaning that it was a symbolical psychological death. And its power lies in the fact that he did this with his father. In uh, Carl Jung's Red Book, there is a very important chapter where Carl Jung has a dream during which he kills Siegfried. Siegfried is the epitome of the German hero, blonde, courageous, all of that. And Carl Jung was very disturbed by this dream until he realized that in order to grow into his own self, he needed to, so to speak, kill his idol. An idol is very important for our growth. They give us direction. But eventually, in order to grow into our own, we need to let go of that idol, of that hero. And this is what Jesse's experience was about so that he could relate to his father, not by having him on a pedestal, by not just fulfilling his perceived expectations of his father, but begin in earnest to walk on his own two legs. Mm. I'll be honest, this is a topic that truly fascinates me, and I'm going to dive deeper into it in future episodes. I'll circle back with Javier at the end to get his overall view on the entire experience that Jesse's going to share. You're about to hear what Jesse did to integrate these changes in his life in the days after returning from Peru. After all, we've all had peak experiences that we thought would change our lives forever and ultimately didn't. It does take doing something to make sure that these shifts anchor deeply into your being and you don't regress back to this previous state. Here's Jesse. Okay, so you had the experiences you had and the insights that those brought, and then phase three of the program, which is integration, 
you have to fly home and go back to your life that you left behind. So what was that like for you? Yeah, it's interesting because the experience we were having was so separate from the life back home. And as that time to go home started to arrive, I really started to think, am I going to actually implement the insights that I've started to have and the realizations that I've had? And it was actually on the final leg of the flight home, Michael, that something cracked open within me and I just grabbed a journal and just started writing. And in that moment, I was like, you know what, I'm going to write all of the things that I've just kept inside or that I haven't authentically expressed to others. And, and I just wrote and it just was flowing out of me. And when it was done, I just looked at it and I just I started bawling. I just wrote the most beautiful, authentic, vulnerable thing I've ever written. I actually excused myself. I went to the restroom of the airplane uh -huh. and had a cry. And wow. I, I tell you, that isn't a normal experience for me in case yeah. other people do that on airplanes. So what was it about what you wrote that was so impactful? Well, what I titled it there, it was an honest admission. Do you have a sense who you were writing it to when you were writing it? At the time I was writing it and I, I just said to myself, I'm going to write this just to be honest with myself. And that's why I just mm -hmm. called it an honest admission. Well, I can tell you in, in all truth, when I finished writing it, I was like, well, not going to share that with anybody. That was actually how I felt. And then as the plane landed and as I arrived home and my friends were eagerly awaiting to hear all of the details of my experience, I just thought back to something that you did while we were in Peru, where you just boldly shared an aspect of your childhood and, and your family dynamic. And I just remember witnessing that and thinking, wow, that was really bold because the main people I didn't want to read what I wrote were my parents and my sister for whatever reason, right? And so right. then within a day, within maybe 48 hours, I went from, well, I'm never sharing that with anyone to I'm going to share it with everyone I've ever met publicly, my entire audience. Now, uh, wait a second, slow the hell down. So <laughs> you go from, I'm not showing this to anyone, to realizing that the only way out of something that you must have been feeling was to share it with everyone. Yeah. Similar to how, you know, this point of no return. And once we take part and drink the ayahuasca, there isn't going back to a non-having drinking ayahuasca state. And in the same sense, once I wrote this and once it was out of me and onto paper and existed outside of my own mind, then I was like, well, I'll see what happens. Like I had this expectation, okay, I'll share it and then people won't want to do business with me or it'll change the dynamic of our relationship. People but won't I thought, trust well, you. Maybe, yeah, I thought maybe there's somebody who needs to see this. Maybe there's somebody else that needs to hear this. And then I just sort of, I was like, all right, I'm just going to do it right now before I overthink it and loaded it up and pushed it out. Ready, fire, aim. Yes. But before we go further, I still want to explore there a bit. Like, what did you hope would come from sending it out. Like it, it's a strategy to meet some core need that couldn't be met by anything else because it's pretty extreme. Yeah, that's true. I, I would say this then my whole role in publishing and working with other people to bring their stories and their experience out into the world. I just felt, I guess, well, I need to lead from the front and share something vulnerable and authentic and hopefully inspiring and owning my stuff. And I, I feel like that was the pivot or the shift of would I really change anything if I just wrote it all down and stuffed it under my mattress and nobody ever knew what I had 
done and what the result was. Yeah. The real just claiming of who you are. Yeah. Cause like I'd be on stage saying things like you never know who needs to hear the words that you've written. Like you never know when you're going to cross paths with someone in their life at the exact right time to move the needle for them. Okay. And that all sounds good. And now right. it was time for me to do it too. Got it. And so when you sent it, who did you send it to? At the time, I had maybe 17,000 people on our email list and 5,000 friends on Facebook. But I would always just communicate to our email audience for publishing stuff and author information. So family and basically everyone who knows you yes, professionally yes. and personally. Yeah. Was it like this fast, like, oh, and just hit send and then go get a lemonade and sit in the backyard. Like what happened? How was that like? <laughs> I was sitting there at my desk and I hit send and I hit publish to Facebook just back to back. And then I, I got up, I walked downstairs. I don't know if it was a lemonade, but I like <laughs> stretched for a moment. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I got to see what's happening. And I went back to my computer and in minutes, there was a few dozen responses. People had messaged me like at like text message, replied to the email commented on Facebook. And this continued for 24, 48 hours. I think over 400 people wrote me something personal or in some cases asked to share what I sent to their entire audience and use it as a teaching point. Even one person shared it with their brother who was in prison and said that it inspired him to start living a better life when he gets out. And, you know, it's choking me up to think about how much this landed. And were you surprised? I yeah, I was surprised that there really wasn't any negative feedback. Nobody was like, what a jerk. Why are you spamming me with this crap? None of that. Oh, and of course, wow, that's what I think. And I think a lot of people may think is the result we're going to get if we share something vulnerable and authentic. And yet yeah. my experience was completely overwhelmingly positive and kind of took my breath away that I think it sort of shines a light on like how many other people suffer in silence? How many other people live in a way that feels inauthentic and they may not even be able to describe what that is. And that yeah. was a taste of the type of responses that were coming in. Wow. Had an interesting conversation with my mother <laughs> and father and sister, and then it was okay. Well, it's been years and yet it still feels very alive for you. Are you ready to share it with thousands of more people? <laughs> yeah. I'll give it a go. Shall I uh, share what I wrote on that yes. flight back home? Yes, I want to hear it. Hey there, let's pause the interview for a moment so that I can humble myself to ask for your help. You're enjoying this episode, right? Well, I'm wondering who you know that may value this information as much as you do. I'm often texting podcast links to friends when I think they would appreciate the information. So, who do you know that may benefit from this episode? When someone comes to mind, please pause to text the episode link to them. Thanks for helping me spread the word. Now let's get back to the interview. So here it is. It's an honest admission. For the last 20 years, I've smoked or ingested marijuana almost every day. In most cases, multiple times a day. And in spite of this, 
by nearly all outward appearances, my life has been one of numerous accomplishments. I've founded or co-founded numerous companies, learned some German, Russian, and Mandarin Chinese. I've even been flown around the world to teach men about confidence and dating, including three all-expense-paid trips to the Playboy Mansion. I arguably went to one of the best universities on earth and in my final semester with the most difficult classes, got straight A's. Hi almost every day. I, I told a friend once in advanced political economy discussion class this, and he couldn't believe it. How could I take something that presumably dulls the senses and then vigorously debate economic development theories and vehemently defend my libertarian worldview and engage self-styled communists on Sproul Plaza in debates? More recently, I wrote a book trying to explain my approach to life and business, seeking to share something of value with others who would be sovereign masters of their own life, and it became a bestseller. Didn't mention marijuana once, although it was clearly an undercurrent in everything I wrote about. And I probably wrote most of the book high as well. And then I started a publishing company and published 10 plus best-selling books. And sure, these aren't New York Times bestsellers, but I have a screenshot to back up everyone. Hi. And yet, for all the premium I've placed on maintaining an upstanding appearance and face to the world, deep down, I've always known the weakness that accompanies not being able to control a compulsion. Compulsion is so seductive, it wove itself into nearly every fiber of my being. My relationship life alternated between extremes of passion and isolation. So many times, I ingested marijuana without my partner knowing. And for what? For my own amusement? My financial life leaves little to be desired. At 34, I have a negative net worth, relied on my father for financial support more times than I care to admit. And now I'm returned from a 10-day retreat in Peru, where I partook in a number of plant medicine ceremonies under expert guidance and care. Not to get, quote, high, but because ayahuasca is the one thing I've read about that has the potential to give perspective on a situation situation like mine. It worked. Now I understand myself on a level of depth that I can't believe is real sometimes, but it's as real as the words I'm writing and that you're listening to now. This understanding is not a function of some powerful entheogenic substance showing me God or really anything external whatsoever. This understanding is one born from something so simple and yet so profound, surrender and forgiveness. Surrendering the illusions and identities of held in exchange for self-acceptance, self-love, and forgiveness. Not forgiveness of anyone I may have ever perceived that harmed me, did me wrong in any way, but forgiving myself for all the times I trespassed my own values for expediency or out of habit. Forgiving myself for the needless pain and suffering that I've inflicted on myself. Forgiving myself for all the emotional attachment and artifice that I've carried for the people who I've perceived myself as having harmed inadvertently or intentionally. And at the end of it all, these words give me both solace and strength. I release, I surrender, I am willing. I love you, Jesse. I release myself from all the unnecessary constructs and constraints my hyperactive intellect has created and perpetuated over the years. I surrender all of the arguments, entrepreneurial decisions, learning languages, and everything I've done to prove my worth to myself or anyone else, I surrender. Therefore, anyone who would face me in a spirit of competition wins. I am willing to engage with anyone, any situation, any opportunity to learn and grow 
grow with a spirit of willingness that does not seek to predetermine or influence the outcome, but rather to serve as an opportunity to learn and experience all this life has to offer. And so I share this in a spirit of willingness and love, if only for my own sake, but also with the hope that it may empower others, that it may empower you, and thereby further empower me, and so on in a virtuous cycle. Through these ceremonies with ayahuasca, I have felt firsthand what it is to die and death not ends it, but simply marks the beginning of what comes next. I won't say that I'm not scared of death, but I will die, and so will everyone on earth alive as I write this now. And in light of that morbid reminder, I am most willing to live, to truly live, to live without fear and with great joy, because life is beautiful and worth experiencing in its totality. Therefore, I release, I surrender, I am willing, I love you, Jesse, and because of that, I'm capable to love you. So I love you and thank you for listening. And may you be empowered to live with a spirit of love and willingness for all your days. Wow, that is so beautiful. I've ever read that out loud. That was really something. Yeah, I'm curious about a lot of things, but above all, yeah, what are you hearing as you read this again for the first time in a while? Michael, it takes me back to writing it in that plane to the four years that have unfolded since and the ways I've tried to live into the latter part of this letter. I feel yeah. more authentic in my life and I think my outward results in life reflect a greater congruence and authenticity than, let's say, I was living before we went to Peru. And I'm curious what aspect of it felt most vulnerable or emotionally touching to you as you were reading it? I guess it, there's something so profound to really embody that I have been the source of my own joys and miseries and that the unhealed parts of myself manifested in some complex situations in life that brought about the same result, whether that was disappointment or keeping intimate relationships at arm's length or never fully committing to a business longer than the one or two years that I was interested about it at the outset. And with that regard, you know, I'm still running the same company. And now it's been six years. And like, I think plant medicine has really helped appreciate the nature of time and that with time passing and the right soil and environment, then the magic unfolds. So not trying to rush things and just knowing that I'll be publishing books and working with authors for as far as I can see. And there's mm -hmm. something like calming to just know and have a purpose in life that is an end in and of itself and allows me to try and embody the better parts of what I just shared in my daily life as a practice. So I'm pressing pause on Jesse's interview. So much of his journey is about reconciling his relationship with his father. He's shedding the last vestiges of his adolescent behavior and identity and codependence with his dad, hiding, feeling shame about his use of marijuana. He's shedding it all by courageously outing himself to his entire world, effectively killing off the version of him he was experiencing himself as and others relating to him as, and in so doing, creating the space for a new, more congruent and aligned version of himself to take root. At this point, I feel really inspired to reach out to Jesse's dad. I want to take this extra step and find out whether 
he noticed any change in Jesse? And if so, what did that do for their relationship? I wanted to know how he felt about the letter he received from Jesse and how that impacted the father-son dynamic as well as the author-publisher dynamic that they've been dancing for so many decades. And last but not least, I wanted to know if his book was ready for publication and maybe even a little bit about this mysterious book. So before long, I'm on the phone with Ken Krieger. Well, Ken didn't disappoint. He shared generously, and here's what he said. Hi, Ken. Thanks for being willing to meet. My pleasure. Yeah. As I shared on the phone, I'm working on this interview with Jesse, and so much of it was about his dual relationship really, with you as his father and an author that he's working with. I felt like the interview would be incomplete if I didn't hear your voice and get a little bit of your perspective on what it's like to have that relationship with your son. Sounds great. I asked Ken if he remembered receiving that email, and what did he think? I did received that letter, and I do remember reading it. My initial response to the letter was a feeling that he's becoming more honest with himself. And confessing that things weren't so hot is a great healing step. You're able to, one, accept feedback from people in a more honest mode. And so I wasn't shocked. Uh, it was more of, uh, phew, he's finally arriving. I knew he had the capability, but I certainly look back at my past and a lot of people I know, they all have to have some crisis or some turning point in life to open up and become more honest. Reading into what you just shared, I was wondering if you experienced some of his defenses going down because the charade was over and then you could have more direct conversations or just be more honest with him about any of the dynamics. To a certain extent, Jesse and I have a different level of communication than let's just say with my daughter or even my partner, because we both share a vision that we incarnated for a certain purpose. We had an honesty between us that was pretty point blank and truthful. So when he came forth with his letter, it was opening up beyond just me. Whatever drugs he took in Peru, I think that's great. It opened up his heart, but kind of pulled back the shield. And so four years ago, when he wrote that letter, I was just proud that he was getting through the crap that you have to get through. More dimensional being, and it's humbling at times. Yeah, he passed through the gate of humility. You got it. You got it. And once you do that, a lot of things open up because you're willing to receive easier and you can identify your aspects of your personality easier to the people who are willing to help you or are in your life so that there is a greater sharing of uh, a love of life. A love of life and self. Yes, yes, indeed. My last question is, what does your book need to be ready for publication? I've had four major editors, Jesse's editors, look over it in four different years. We wrote it four different times. I think I got it this time. I would say Jesse gets my daily lectures and my breakthroughs, but I can't think of there being anything else. The end product of my book is the Peace Platform, which consists of a modern-day I Ching with 64 themes arranged in eight columns and the Pillars of Peace, which which basically are the practices that come from what I call the Holy Grail, which is the summary of the starlight philosophy. The key theme in the book is consciousness. So Jesse would always lecture me every single time, get your book done. I don't care if it's ready or not. First one, he could always modify it later. And I would tell him, no, Jesse, it doesn't work that way. I didn't get it right the first time out of the gate or I don't get it out of the gate. But dad, right. you're in the 70s. I said, that doesn't matter. I feel like a teenager. I'll get it right the first time because it's not a second time. 
I don't know who in the world would have signed up what I signed up for. I mean, it is nuts. So in answer to your question, it's pretty much done. I'm walking through my final 300 final edits to make sure that I'm consistent in all the terminology. And so maybe it'll be done this year? Oh, there's no question. I'm just about ready to start where I came down here in the first place. Yeah. Well, Ken, I really want to thank you. This has been truly enjoyable and I think a big contribution. Well, thank you. Best of luck. All right. Thank you, Ken. Take care. So there you have it from Ken Krieger. It seems to me that he really appreciated Jesse's outing himself by sending that email. I think Jesse's very fortunate to have such an open-minded and supportive father. And how about that book? I see why it's taken 30 years to write. It sounds incredibly complicated. So before going back to Jesse and asking for his final words, I wanted again to hear from Javier, this time about Jesse's overall experience. So once again, here's Javier Riguero. Okay. And so when we look at the four primary experiences that Jesse had during the course of the week-long retreat, what do you see unfolding there? So the first thing, and I speak also from my own experience, is that there is nothing more self-empowering than self-honesty and the willingness to be vulnerable with oneself and be vulnerable with others. So that's the first thing that struck Mm -hmm. me as meaningful in Jesse's words. The other one is the fact that this was not an abstract experience, that he actually had the courage to stay honest with himself and to honor the insight that he received while here in Peru. Peruvian Andean spirituality is very practical. And uh, any wisdom, any insights that we may receive from this land or from the process with plant medicine is only valid when we implement it, when we manifest it. And this is what I see Jesse as having done. And for that, I honor him for having had the courage, the strength to honor those insights in our culture. We've been spending about 3,000 years looking for the truth outside ourselves, when the truth that really matters, as far as I'm concerned, is our own truth, no matter what that is. And to actually embody, to step into that truth, that personal truth, is the most self-empowering thing that anybody can do. Thank you so much, Javier, for toiling with the technology that made this recording possible and taking the time. You're more than welcome. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Okay, there's just one last piece. I want to hear from Jesse one more time. So... I'll send all that you've just heard to him and have him listen to it for the first time and then hop on a call and capture his final thoughts and feelings about his journey, his father's comments, and Javier's comments. Hopefully, this will tie it together, not only for us, but really, most importantly, for him. After all, it has been four years since he's reflected on this in a deep way. And I have a sense that he's going to come away with new insights and learnings as a result of this. Let's find out. Hey, Jesse, thanks for being willing to hop on one more call with me. (laughs) My pleasure. So you just finished listening to your episode for the first time. 
And I wonder, how do you feel? Honestly, what a journey. I mean, it was an opportunity to reflect on the last four plus years now since we were in Peru in 2016. It was really touching to hear Javier's contribution to the episode and his reflection on my experience. I look to him as somebody who embodies this practice of self-honesty and living authentically and congruently just to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. Also to hear my father's perspective and right. you know, had a good chuckle when you asked him about, is his book ready? I just did a little <laughs> happy dance when I was listening, like, get him, Michael. <laughs> but... <laughs> At the same time, I also did reflect like before Peru, yes, I would berate him, get it done, just give it to me. I'm going to copy it off your computer and publish it. And I was like, wow, have I really changed and grown since then to honor the process and be available in different ways instead of trying to drive everything forward. Yeah, um, it sounds like you're less attached to it even being published. Yeah, it was an outcome of that whole death experience. And you really eloquently and Javier cited a great example too of that rite of passage, that transition out of adolescence, that affirming a new identity into maturity and adulthood. It is very much the process of our journey to Peru and the so many that you've led through work of this nature. Well, I'm glad that resonated with you. No, good call on your part. And with that, it strikes a chord that I agree. There's so many people have become older biologically without having a rite of passage or a releasing and death experience of parts of the former self. And engaging in that work, it's profound in terms of the actual shift in, let's say, my point of view and perspective on the world and my life and my role in it. And so it's very valuable. And I just really respect and appreciate you bringing this to the, the conversational table, so to speak. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of the things that I discovered through this process of working with you and really feel strongly about the value of people realizing some aspects of ourselves are still immature and the incongruency between the more mature aspects and the less mature aspects create inner conflict. And the more extreme, the more negative impact that inner conflict has on our ability to live at the frontier of our full potential. You've actually brought my awareness to so many aspects of indigenous culture and how those cultures embrace this as a natural part of their life cycle and how that's been sort of abstracted and removed in modern life. Yeah. High school graduation doesn't really cut it as a rite of passage that actually changes the adolescent into a young adult. And then, so let's just assume we all were self-aware enough to recognize where we were less mature, what aspects we wanted to mature up, so to speak. Then what do we do about that? Like there isn't even a way to do it. There's nothing in our culture that offers that. Mm. And this is also an area that I got excited about is to consider approaching ayahuasca specifically, but generally speaking, you could accomplish it with many different psychedelics if that was the intention and the container for the experience and the prep and the integration after the experience was holding that as its intention. It's difficult to think of a way that is going to be more effective in such a short amount of time with ultimately no risk to life and limb, although you get the simulated risk that you need 
to cross that fear threshold. So I have a question about the letter. I'm remembering a story that Napoleon Bonaparte is famous for. When his army crossed the English Channel to fight the British, he burned the boats on the British shore so that the army knew there was no way to retreat. And they won that battle. I see your letter in a similar way. You revealed all your hiding places to the world so that you couldn't hide anymore. Or at least if you did, people would know where to find you. And I'm wondering, how did that work? Yes, I love the analogy. I think that can sum up the whole experience. It very much was a rite of passage, a transition further away from adolescence and further into adulthood and manhood. And taking a concrete action that prevented me negating the experience for whatever reason I may have come up with once that plane landed was yeah. obliterated by a full vulnerable exposure of who I am and how I will choose to carry myself in the world. So how's your relationship with marijuana changed? It has changed in honest hindsight. You know, so much of that first part of the letter and this whole honest admission is tied into some secret guilt or shame, whether that was parental disapproval or doing something that was not legal or whatever. And I found that sharing that story helped release the tie-in of marijuana itself with really negative feelings of shame. Because it wasn't a problem. No. I mean, that was kind of the... <laughs> the only the, problem was you were ashamed of it. That seems to be the only problem. Bingo. And isn't it interesting that marijuana, a plant medicine, ultimately found some resolution with my feelings towards it with another plant medicine. And as we talked about, you know, without going back down the rabbit hole, but just this reflection on the nature of plants and the passage of time and maturity and seasons of life feels so aligned. I mean, I haven't gone back to the well many times with ayahuasca or with San Pedro, but I carry those lessons with me. Yes. It's been a pretty amazing experience, to be honest. My other question is, how has your inner relationship with your dad changed? Yeah. In terms of feeling that release of obligation and that sense of expectation, both that he should do it a certain way or on a certain timeline, and also that I felt tied to and committed to being a part of its birthing. Mm -hmm. And so that's relaxed in terms mm -hmm. of inside. I, I, I don't press on him. It's I'd let him have his experience and we'll see. Like in the meantime, it's not eating away at me and we're not doing some dance around it that we perhaps used to. One thing your dad said that I just had to ask you about was that he believes and he inferred that you believe that you were incarnated in this lifetime to help him get this material out to the world. And I'm wondering where you sit with that belief today. <laughs> yes. Well, I certainly do believe that I was born in this life and this body with him as my parent to specifically set up the exact circumstances of my life such that of course, there's some deep relationship that's playing out here in our lives this time around. I don't claim to know exactly to a T what that is, but I have more clarity on what my role is and what I'm to be doing in my life than, than perhaps ever before. And I hope that for him and for us, and quite frankly, for everybody, because I think the world and everything is changing and fast. And this type of inner work and embodiment and being vulnerable and open to transformational processes has helped me immensely to navigate periods of uncertainty and change. Well, Jesse, I want to thank you again for 
being so vulnerable and honest and sharing your story in, in such a way that it can touch other people. Thank you so much, Michael. This has been quite an experience reliving this. And thank mm -hmm. you for taking the time to put this story together to share with people because there's a real art to how you're doing it. And it's such a beautiful opportunity for others to learn from experiences like mine mm. stretched out over years and not just whatever I felt the morning after a ceremony, so to speak. Yeah, you're so welcome. Okay, my friend, we'll talk soon. Bye. Hey there, it makes me happy that you listened to the entire episode. And I'm curious to know what you found most valuable about it. To be honest, your feedback is what inspires me to keep going. Seeing that thousands of people have downloaded this episode is cool but it doesn't uplift my spirits like hearing from you. Please email your feedback to hello at entrepreneursawakening.com. And by the way, if you thought this episode was interesting, you'll want to hear more episodes at entrepreneursawakening.com slash podcast. If you're curious about our upcoming retreat programs, please visit entrepreneursawakening.com to find out more. I'd like to thank the talent that made this episode possible. Thank you, Julia Marianska, for your support as a producer, editor, and thought partner on this episode. Thank you, Javier Riguero, for sharing your perspectives. Last but not least, thank you, Future Primitive, for allowing me to use your music. Please visit entrepreneursawakening.com podcast to find links to Jesse's publishing company, Javier's books, Julia's production company, and Future Primitive's music. See you next episode. Hi there. I hope you found this episode valuable. I want to take this last opportunity to invite you to consider joining the upcoming Mastermind program. If you're curious, simply go to awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, I'll see you next episode.